1741, a devout Anglican by the name of Charles Jennings compiled a set of scripture texts and then sent them to the greatest composer in England at the time in the hopes that Handel would set those texts to music. And within a mere 24 days, Handel produced one of the greatest oratorios that the world has ever heard. And to mark the return of Central's annual performance of Handel's Messiah, which took place last weekend, we've decided to focus our attention on the texts that tell the story and which made Messiah so famous. So today we turn to one of the best-loved moments in Handel's Messiah, when the prophet Isaiah declares some surprising news. He offers us this surprising gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now I want you to pay attention to that word. Unto us a son is given. This promised child is the greatest of all gifts. Now someone asked me just the other day, why is it that Christians give gifts to one another at Christmas time? That's true, there's a long tradition of people exchanging gifts and especially giving to meet the needs of the poor at Christmas, why is that? Well, at least in part, the answer is that our giving reflects the giving of the wise men. When the Magi come to the home where Jesus is staying and they see Jesus and his mother Mary, they fall to the ground in worship. Opening up their treasures, they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So they respond in worship. They realize that Jesus is the greatest gift. And likewise, it is for us. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we give him the worship of our lives. And in part, to worship him means that we demonstrate to him how much we respect and value and trust him. And our worship of Jesus often overflows with joy and with generosity to others and especially those in need. Now, it is, of course, true, as Jesus himself said, that it is better to give than to get. And yet, the greatest of all gifts is not something that we offer, it's something that we receive. And so today I'd like us to focus on this passage from Isaiah 9, which reminds us that the giving of God to us is what motivates and inspires all of our other giving. So as we look at this passage, let's consider what is this gift? Why does it matter? And how do we receive it? So let me invite you to open up a Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. You can find this beginning on page 573 of the Pew Bible. The passage is also written in the order of worship. I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and verses 6 through 7. But there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, first, let's consider what is this gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But the thing that you need to understand is that a millennia before the birth of Jesus, God made a promise. He promised David, the greatest of Israel's kings, that after David was dead and buried, God would raise up a son, a descendant, who would sit on David's throne. But God not only promises that he will secure David's royal line, he promises that he will establish David's throne forever. Now let me just remind you, forever is a really long time. So these promises are far too extravagant to be merely fulfilled within the birth of David's son, Solomon, who succeeded him as king. Now they had to point to an even greater fulfillment. So a couple centuries later, Isaiah comes along and the prophet Isaiah reiterates this promise. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now on the one hand, that word child suggests that this promised one will be of human descent. And that word son suggests that he will stand within that royal line. And that's why some have suggested, well, perhaps Isaiah was talking about Hezekiah, a distant descendant of David who was born in the year 737 BC. But Isaiah cannot be talking about a mere human being because of the ways in which he goes on to describe this promised child. Which is why from the very beginning, when people read the words of Isaiah, they knew that he was pointing forward to an even greater one. Because look at these descriptors. First of all, he says that this child will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be the highest and the greatest of all teachers. Now, the closest synonym for that word wonderful would be the word supernatural. This person will possess supernatural wisdom. That's the way in which God himself is described. God is wonderful in his counsel in Isaiah 28, verse 29. And think about how Jesus himself was described. When people met Jesus, they were astonished by his teaching. They'd never heard anything like it before. They were filled with wonder when they heard him speak because he spoke with authority and they wondered where he got this stuff especially because he hadn't received any formal training. And now we know why, because his wisdom was literally out of this world. It was supernatural. But the second title that Isaiah uses to describe this promised child suggests that he cannot be a merely great human teacher who's simply more in touch with the divine than the rest of us, because he goes on to say, not only is he a wonderful counselor, but he is mighty God. He is the mighty God himself. Now, some have tried to lessen the force of these words by translating them as God-like hero. But that's not what the words say. Jesus is not merely a God-like hero. He is the almighty God himself. And that's what even doubting Thomas came to see. Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples who refused to believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead unless he saw it with his own eyes. But when he sees the risen Jesus for himself, he drops to his knees and he declares Jesus' true identity. He says, not only are you my Lord, but you are my God. Jesus is the mighty God. 
Now that third title is a little more tricky because he's described as the everlasting father. But if Jesus is the unique son of God, how could he be described as the father? Well, this title does not describe Jesus' place within the Trinity, but rather it describes his relationship to his people. So here's a closer analogy. You could think of George Washington. Washington is often referred to as the father of the nation. And that's the way in which the word father is being used in Isaiah. It describes the perfect ruler who loves and cares and provides for his people as a father cares, loves, and provides for his own children. But here's the important difference. Jesus is not merely a father to his people. He is the everlasting father. There will be no end to his rule. And then finally, this promised child is described as the prince of peace. But you have to remember that the word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. So the peace that Jesus brings is not merely a ceasefire or an end to hostility. The peace that God brings is not merely a state of tranquility. Rather, the word peace refers to universal flourishing. It describes a state of affairs that is filled with wholeness, harmony, and delight in all of our relationships, first and foremost with God, and then secondarily with one another, with the created order, and even within ourselves. And that's why it's so significant that on the night in which Jesus is born, the angels break out in a song, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace, shalom, among those with whom he is well pleased. This is what Jesus has come to do, to establish God's shalom, to bring about the universal flourishing of all people and of all creation. So what is the gift? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, I hope we can see that this promised child, though of human descent, could not possibly be a mere mortal based on the ways in which Isaiah describes him. And that's why the earliest Christians from the very start recognized that Jesus, fully God and fully human, was this promised child. Jesus is the greatest of all gifts. God has nothing greater to offer us than Jesus himself. But so what? Why should I care? What difference does this make? Well, if this is the greatest of all Christmas gifts, what happens if you were to unwrap this present and open it? Well, I would suggest that if you open this gift, it would provide light in the midst of darkness, power in the midst of weakness, and justice in the midst of brokenness. See, first of all, this gift promises us light in the midst of darkness. There's a great scene towards the end of The Two Towers, the second volume in J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. There's a growing darkness which has enveloped the whole land of Middle-earth, and it falls to the protagonist, Frodo Baggins, and his friend, the gardener, Samwise Gamgee, to do something about it. But now they find themselves in a difficult and dangerous spot, and they talk about how they never would have signed up for this task if they knew what they were getting into from the start. And then they proceed to have a conversation about the kind of people who end up in the great stories, the stories that people tell, the stories that stick in our minds, stories filled with darkness and danger. And Sam begins by saying, we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things 
and the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really matter or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid out that way, as you put it. But I expect that they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they would have been forgotten. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know, and that's the way of a real tale. Take anyone that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know. And Sam continues, still, I wonder if we shall ever be put into songs or tales. We're in one, of course, but I mean put into words, you know, told by the fireside or read out of a great big book with red and black letters years and years afterwards. And people will say, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the famousest of the hobbits. And that's saying a lot. Now, what I want you to realize is that when you put your trust in Jesus, when you identify yourself with him, then his story becomes your own. And so when we pick up the the scriptures, we realize that we are part of an unfolding story. But you got to remember that in this story, you're not the hero. You're not Frodo. No, you and I, we're, we're just the gardener. We're just Sam. We're just the friend who's there to help out. But nevertheless, this becomes our story. This book written with black and red letters becomes our own. And that is what provides us with a sense of light, even in the midst of darkness. See, consider Isaiah's story. Isaiah began his public ministry in the year 740 BC. And at that time, there was a darkness that was enveloping the northern tribes of Israel. And so by 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire had completely destroyed the 10 tribes in the north of Israel and carried the people away into exile. That's what became known as the lost 10 tribes of Israel. And so here is Isaiah looking at the world around him and seeing the darkness closing in. But he doesn't give in to despair. He doesn't focus his attention on his immediate circumstances. He trusts God farther than his eyes can see. And instead, he focuses his gaze on the vision of God's promised future. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now talk about long-term vision here. Isaiah doesn't focus on the doom and gloom that is happening all around him because he knows that eventually it's all going to give way to glory. The people who are currently walking around aimlessly in the dark have seen a great light. And that's what fills him with hope. But here's the shocking thing about it is that great light will not appear for another 700 years. And yet as far as Isaiah is concerned, it's as good as done. He puts it all in the past tense. It's as if it's already happened. Because he says in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's no doubt in his mind. So do you see that? He doesn't give in to this narrative of decline. He doesn't focus on the desperation and the death all around him. He sees through the gloom and sees the bright light is already shining because it is as good as done. And the greatest part about this is that 
the very region that was first shrouded in darkness, that very region up north that first falls to the Assyrian Empire, is the place where that light first begins to shine. And that's why the Gospel of Matthew is quick to point out that that very region associated with the ancient tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali up by the Sea of Galilee is the place where Jesus first began to proclaim the gospel. That people who had walked in darkness have now seen a great light. That very same region is the place where Jesus now appears in the scene. Do you see the amazing perspective that Isaiah has on his immediate circumstances because he has in full view the promised future? that God has held out to us. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Isaiah. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 to Isaiah to encourage him. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things seen, but to the things unseen. For the things seen are transient, but the things unseen are eternal. Now you might think this darkness that is closed in on the northern tribes of Israel, a light momentary affliction? Yes. Through the eyes of faith, it is nothing more than a light momentary affliction compared to the glory that God has in store for us. You have no idea what God has in store for you. You have no idea how he might transform even the most horrific suffering in your life. If only we could learn to see through the eyes of faith. You see, Christianity provides us with a radically unique perspective on suffering. When we suffer, whether as individuals or collectively, as a group or as a nation, there's usually one of two ways in which we respond. There's the moralistic response, which says, well, if you're suffering, you must have done something to deserve it. This is God's judgment. God is punishing you. Or then there's the secular approach, which says, well, if you're suffering now, that suggests that God is absent. He's missing in action. He's MIA. He's left the scene. Your suffering is a sign. It's further proof that there is no God. But Christianity rejects both of those responses. Because look at what the gospel tells us. Jesus has entered into our world. He doesn't remain at a safe distance. No, he enters into our world of suffering and sorrow and pain. He becomes a human body. He, he takes on a human body, which means that he knows what it's like to hunger, to thirst, to be tired, and to be lonely. And not only that, he suffers. Jesus himself becomes a victim of cruel injustice and dies a horrible, shameful death on a Roman cross. And so when you look at Jesus on the cross, what do you see? Do you see a condemning God? No, you see a loving God who willingly goes to the cross in order to give himself up for our sins. When you look at Jesus on the cross, do you see an absent God? No, you see a God who's more present than ever. A God who willingly enters into our suffering in order to bear it away. Now, we may never know all the reasons for why we suffer in this life. But it can't be because God doesn't love us. It can't be because God doesn't care. And you see, if we were to take this gift, this 
present of Christmas and open it up, we would see that in Jesus Christ, we find light in the midst of the darkness. And we have far more reason to fix our gaze on the future than Isaiah did, because we can see far more than he ever did. We know the name of that light. We know that his name is Jesus, and therefore we don't have to succumb to pessimism and despair. We don't need to fix our eyes on our immediate circumstances. No, we can focus our gaze on the light that's already shining in the darkness. Jesus suffers with you and for you, and therefore he gives you a tremendous resource to be able to stand up under the suffering you experience. He gives you strength for suffering. But if you were to open up this present and receive it for yourself, you would receive not only light in the darkness, but also power in weakness. Isaiah sets up a rather strong contrast here. Think about how he describes this promised child. He says that this one will be the supernatural teacher. He will be the almighty God himself. He will be the perfect ruler. He will be the Prince of Peace, the Sovereign of Shalom, who establishes God's flourishing. He's in a category all by himself. There's no one like him. And yet, look at the contrast in terms of how he comes. Look at the contrast between who he is and how he comes to us. He doesn't flaunt his power and his strength, but rather he comes to us in humility and weakness. He makes himself vulnerable. The God of the universe opens himself up to us. He becomes fragile. He places himself in a position where he can be hurt. He can be broken. He comes as a baby. Ashley and I, my wife, were having a conversation not long ago about a family vacation that we took with our extended family. We were staying at my parents' house and all of our nieces and nephews were there. And my nephew was four years old and he went upstairs and got his two-week-old baby sister out of the crib when she woke up from her nap and then proceeded to carry her down the stairs. Four-year-old boy carrying a two-week-old newborn. And thankfully, he made it safely down to the bottom of the stairs, at which point his parents quickly grabbed the baby. But you realize that this is what God has done. God put himself in a position where he could be dropped. He made himself vulnerable. And that is the key to all of our relationships. Have you ever met someone who never shares what's on their mind, never shows any emotion, never shares any of their inmost thoughts or feelings, presents a cool exterior, comes across as untouchable? Well, it's almost impossible to have a relationship with someone like that because relationship requires connection. And C.S. Lewis years ago commented on this. He said that to love at all requires taking a risk. He writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. 
It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You see, God became a human being. He put himself in a position where he could be hurt, where he could be broken. He made himself vulnerable. Why? Because it's the only way he can enter into a relationship with us. It's the only way to know and be known. The only way to love and to be loved is to become vulnerable. So do you see what God has done? He dropped his defenses. He put down his shield. And this is how the heavenly kingdom comes. This is how his power breaks into our world. In Jesus Christ, the infinite one became finite. The limitless one embraced limits. The invincible one became fragile. And Jesus wins our salvation through losing. He triumphs through the apparent failure and defeat of the cross because his power is made perfect in weakness. And that's true of all of us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And that is why Jesus and his coming at Christmas reverses the values of our world. Jesus shows us that the way up is really down. The way to true greatness is through service. The way to true riches is through generosity. And the way in which we grow is not by proudly hiding our faults and failures, but rather by humbly admitting them and recognizing our need for Jesus. His power is made perfect in weakness. But then finally, if we were to open up this Christmas gift for ourselves, we would receive justice in the midst of brokenness. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other ideology offers you hope either for the body or for the soul. Every other religion, philosophy, ideology offers you either hope for this life or for the life to come. Eastern religions tell you that the physical world around you is an illusion. And therefore, salvation means detaching yourself from this world. Secularism, by contrast, tells you that this physical world is all there is. And so whatever meaning or fulfillment you're going to find, you have to find in whatever this world alone has to offer. And there's really no guarantee that justice will ever triumph in the end. But Christianity is the only religion in the world that offers you hope for both the body and the soul. For both this life and the life to come. Why? Because Jesus is the world's true king who has come into our world, who has assumed a human body in order to establish true justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He will reign forever and ever. Now those words, justice and righteousness, those are relational words. To be just, to be righteous, means to be in right relationship, first and foremost with God, and then secondarily with other people. And the gospel is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again in order to reconcile you in relationship with God and with others, and to renew the whole world, to usher in his shalom, his universal flourishing. He's come into the world to restore you, body and soul, physically and spiritually. It starts now and it lasts forever. Jesus will right every wrong, starting with you. The gospel brings you peace with God 
And then he will usher in a world where everyone and everything will flourish under his care. He offers us justice, true justice, in the midst of a broken world. And that's why faithful Christians down through the centuries can speak of rescuing people from guilt and sin and from poverty and human trafficking in the same breath. Because Christians down through the centuries have never driven a wedge between the vertical and the horizontal. They always go together. There is, of course, an ultimacy to our relationship with God because everything else flows from that. But Christians who have been faithful to the message of Jesus have been committed to evangelism and social action, to proclaiming the good news of the gospel and pursuing the good of others at one and the same time. Because the holistic salvation that Jesus brings encompasses everything. He created body and soul. He is going to redeem body and soul. And therefore, the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel always go together. So Jesus is the greatest of all gifts. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God doesn't have a greater gift to give than himself. Do you realize that? There's nothing better, there's nothing greater than what God has already given. He's given you his son. And if you open up that gift, it will provide you light in the midst of darkness. It'll give you strength for suffering. And it'll also give you hope for the future. It'll give you justice in the midst of brokenness. And that's why we sing in that old great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. He offers us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. But these promises will be of no good to you as long as they remain outside of you. You have to receive them for yourself. I mean, imagine if someone were to give you a Christmas gift and you left it there unwrapped under the tree or you stuck it away in a closet. That gift will do you absolutely no good until you receive it. The gift is incomplete until it is received. So how do you receive this, the greatest of all gifts? Well, those who receive Jesus and his salvation are not the proud, who don't think that they need to be rescued, but the humble, who know that they do. And those who enter into Jesus' kingdom are not the strong and the accomplished, but rather those who are willing to admit that they are weak and they are lost without Jesus. His power is made perfect in weakness. So how do you receive this gift? Well, the answer is simple. You receive this gift by faith. And faith does not add or contribute anything to our rescue. The best image for faith is simply empty hands. Empty hands have nothing to give, nothing to offer. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we simply extend empty hands and we receive whatever God has to give and what God gives us is himself. And so the only question this Christmas is, will you receive him? And that's why we sing in the great carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear can hear his coming, yet in this world of sin, where meek souls receive him still, the dear Christ enters in.
you hear that? We are meek souls. We're those who admit their weakness, that they are lost without him. He promises to enter in. His power is made perfect in weakness. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. This Christmas, receive him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the greatest of all gifts. We pray that by simple faith, by the empty hands that receive him, we might open up this gift and receive light in the midst of darkness, power in the midst of weakness, and justice in the midst of brokenness. We ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.